Hey everyone, welcome to Just Win with Wanda, a podcast designed to highlight people and their game-winning passions. So hi everyone, thank you again for joining in and and just being here for another episode of Just Win with Wanda. I have a very special guest. I know I say all of my guests are special, but this individual is truly, truly special. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing and connecting with Dr. Jethro Akuta, who is an accomplished regulatory affairs and drug safety executive. He is currently at Alexion Pharmaceuticals and holds the role as vice president of global regulatory affairs. Um, So I'm so excited about this conversation to dive into his career trajectory. So welcome Dr. Akuta to Just Win with Wanda. Thank you very much, Wanda. I appreciate the kind and gracious introduction. You are beyond welcome. Um, and before we get into the questions, I just wanted to, you know, kind of share how I met you. I had the privilege of becoming a fellow through Rutgers University, and they had an affiliation with Johnson & Johnson within the consumer sector. And during my interview, um, Dr. Kuto was one of the individuals that I honestly just connected with really well, you know, based on his background and, and his story coming from Nigeria, it's something that resonated with me. And, and honestly, it was what, it was what sold me <laughs> in terms of that particular fellowship. So it's really nice to, to still have a mentoring relationship with you, Dr. Akuta, and, and have you here to share some gems with my audience. Thank you again, Wanda. It's my honor and privilege to be part of this today. Yeah. Um, So take me back to, you know, when you were in Nigeria, how was your upbringing? And at what point did you realize you wanted to um, get into the science field? Yeah, no, thank you, Wanda. So when I was in Nigeria, I actually grew up in a in a small village and there was an elementary school in that village. So I was one of the lucky few that um, got a chance of attending an elementary school that was just um, a couple steps away from your house. And then there was uh, a government, uh, this was a government secondary school, which was a boarding school, some 15 miles away from my village. And, and one of the you know, top government schools in the area. So I was privileged to attend that boarding school and of course, at the time you had to, after your third year, you had to make a choice between uh, pursuing classes in the arts or in the sciences. So I chose to go down the path of the sciences. And one day there was uh, a veterinary surgeon who came to do a career day conversation with um uh, at my school, and I got very much interested, uh, wanted to become a veterinary surgeon, and I did, in fact, go on, uh, go to the university to train as a veterinary surgeon. But during my second year in the university, when I took pharmacology as the class, I fell in love with it, and from that point on, I wanted to be involved in developing new medicines. And that was the track that took me to eventually come to the U.S. to earn my Ph.D. in pharmacology and subsequently went on to uh, all the places that I've been at, which I can comment on um, as we go along. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a very unique journey. I know when we first met, I was just amazed that you had a veterinarian background. You don't hear that often, you know, when you're connecting with individuals within pharma. So that definitely, you know, helps you stand out. Um, so when you made that transition from Nigeria to the U.S., um, how was that experience in university uh, during that time when you, I believe you went to the University of Miss- Mississippi, right? Yes, yes, that, that is correct. So before I came to the U.S., um, after my graduation from college, of course, uh, for those from Nigeria, you know, you have to complete a one-year National Youth Service Corps. So mm-hmm. following that, I went back to my alma mater and uh, became an assistant professor in pharmacology and physiology. So I taught students that for a couple of years. And then there was an institute uh, called the National Institute for Pharmaceutical Research and Development in Nigeria, uh, based in Abuja, the federal capital. At the time, Nigeria was interested in developing drugs from natural products such as medicinal plants, because as most people know in Nigeria, there is still a lot of practice of traditional medicine. And you know, most of the time parents pass the art to their children. So we wanted to collect uh, as much information as we could from the practitioners around the federal capital territory. So I was responsible for leading that project, actually collecting samples of medicinal plants. And then it turned out that the University of Mississippi had a similar program where they were doing a lot of research at the School of Pharmacy into medicinal plants. So through that collaboration, I came, you know, I, I came to the US to attend the University of Mississippi because I got funding from that institute in Mississippi. And uh, you know, when I arrived, the folks were in Mississippi were very nice. Of course, I had heard a lot about you know the history of Mississippi, and you know, folks were always asking. In fact, to this day, when I introduced myself and said I went to the University of Mississippi, everyone, black, white, whatever, they will, you know, their first reaction is, it's like, what you went to Mississippi? I said, yes, I did. Well, you know what? The folks there were extremely nice to me. My professors were truly, you know, very, very good. And uh, they were very supportive. So I was able to go through my program in a record four years. In fact, when I attended uh, the school, there were colleagues who, you know, had been there, you know, finishing their program in seven to eight years. And for me, finishing up in four years was, you know, quite uh, remarkable at the time. So yeah, folks were nice. And that was how I completed my program. And went on to do postdoctoral training in cardiovascular and neuropharmacology at Meharry Medical College. I was fortunate at the time because when I was at Meharry Medical College, there was this program that uh, the U.S. Congress had uh, provided appropriations for. That means they provided budget you know, to train more people in clinical pharmacology because at the time there was quite you know, a huge shortage at the FDA. So I was, but you were always given the option of um, completing the program and staying on or moving on. So for me, you know, having that privilege was quite remarkable because to this day, you know, it, it never leaves you. If you've been at the FDA, you constantly think like um, an FDA reviewer, which has always helped me in looking at 
issues in industry. So, yeah, that was how I was, you know, fortunate to, to be part of the cohort that uh, trained. And then after my my training, I, you know, I, I'm somebody who enjoys the intellectual stimulation that comes from thinking through a problem as opposed to taking a problem someone else has solved and then trying to, you know, just vet and see if they did it right, which most of the time I feel that's what the reviewers do. They are looking at what somebody else has done and trying to confirm if it was done right, if it was done consistent with the regulations, and if they can rely on the conclusions drawn uh, by the company. So I wanted to be on the side that actually thought through how do we get from point A to point B, because that's where I felt the intellectual stimulation uh, resided. So that's how I went there and then made the decision that going to industry was going to be a better choice for me. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question was, you know, what prompted you to make that career switch? Um, Because as we know, there are individuals who are lifelong FDA reviewers. Um, Absolutely. So can you kind of speak a little bit more about that decision and what went into making that choice? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, when I was at the FDA, I got the privilege of um, attending so many different meetings with sponsors preparing for those meetings from the FDA side and just, you know, thinking through the issues. And what was interesting was, you know, that you could have two companies coming in the same day or separated by one week uh, who are working on the same type of program or within the same therapeutic area. And, you know, at the FDA, you have the line of sight to what all the companies are doing but the companies themselves will not have that line of sight. And so when you give an advice to one company to do something one way, and then the next uh, company representatives come in and they argue that it's not something that can be done, you kind of, you can't really tell them, well, we just told somebody else that this can be done. So we know it can be done. So, but that was quite an interesting, you know, scenario to have. But like I said, what really, uh, was the tipping point for me was I really wanted to have the opportunity of really thinking through a program, uh, a, a drug development program. It could be for a disease for which there is no current uh, treatment, or just f- trying to figure out, you know, like a, a piece of a puzzle to say, okay, how do we, you know, how do we bring things together? Uh, how many patients are we going to need uh, to treat? What type of approach do we need to use? And for how long do we need to treat? How do we interpret the results and package all that and interact with the FDA? Those were the pieces that I found very exciting. And d- during my initial, uh, you know, when I was present at the FDA and engaged in some of those conversations, I just felt, oh, I think I would really enjoy this if I were on the other side, coming to talk to the agency and having gained that knowledge of how the agency thinks about things, I felt it was something that better equipped me to be able to do that well on the industry side. So then when the opportunity came, um, there was actually a program that um, Procter & Gamble hosted at the time where they were looking for uh, minority scholars who could join the company and uh, the, you know they, they made you to have a conversation with 
different hiring managers. And one of the folks I met was the uh, regulatory affairs head. And through the conversation, she was interested in, you know, bringing me on board to join the company. And that was how I began my industry career mm-hmm. in regulatory affairs. Yep. So it started at Procter and Gamble, and then you went to Wyeth, and and then um, BMS. A lot of different experiences at different companies. Yeah. Um, but one of my questions that I have for you is: in addition to the ability to think critically, what additional skills did you acquire from your time at FDA that helped you? You know, as you transitioned into pharma. Yep. So I think uh, you know. One of the key takeaways from the FDA is really their passion for the work that they do. Uh, FDA people take a lot of pride in what they do. They know that the work they do is extremely important uh, for public health. So they take it very seriously. And then in that environment, it was not a competitive environment where one person was trying to outdo the next person but it was a matter of them working together for the common good of humanity. And so, I mean, I can't think of any place beyond the FDA where you have that deep sense of purpose, uh, knowing that the decisions you make on a daily basis will have a huge impact, you know, not just on a few people, not just on people in America, but really across the world. And so that sense of purpose was something that I cherished and admired. And in any type of place that I'm at, I always ask myself, what is the purpose you know, for which I'm here? What am I supposed to contribute? What am I supposed to, how am I supposed to make the world a better place? So that was something I took away from there. And the fact that it equipped me to understand the way they think, which is typically, you know, their primary focus is uh, public health, the protection of public health. And so in almost all decisions they make, that is always at the forefront of their decision-making. Sometimes in industry, it's a question of, okay, how can we get from point A to point B very quickly so that we can get, you know, these to patients and also so that we can, return some value back to shareholders. The FDA doesn't necessarily think of, you know, the shareholder component of it. Of course, they are conscious of it, but it's always what is in the best interest of the patients that we serve. So I also, you know, tend to have that sense of purpose because like I said earlier, I typically will constantly think like I was still at the FDA. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, okay, how can this better serve patients? And then one, you know, final thing was I was fortunate because the person who was my boss at the FDA became highly instrumental in my career progression. Like you mentioned, I worked for many different companies, but the one common thread across most of those companies is this one individual. When I was at the FDA, he took a lot of interest in me, essentially made himself to be a mentor to me. I had not asked him to do so but he took you know, a personal interest in doing so. So when I left Procter & Gamble, it was really to work with him at Pfizer because about the time that I left the FDA and went to P&G, he had left and gone to Pfizer. 
So he, you know, encouraged me to come and join him. I worked with him. And when I left Pfizer and went to Wyatt, he left Pfizer and went to Bristol Myers Squibb. And of course, you know where this story is going. You know, a couple of <laughs> years later, I was back with him working at Bristol Myers Squibb. It turned out, you know, when we both left, he went back to Pfizer. I went to Genzyme. And eventually I came to J&J. He ended up coming to, uh, to J&J, Johnson & Johnson. And that was when I actually told him, well, all these years I have followed you around. But this time around, you followed me because I came to <laughs> J&J before you. So, yeah, so it was good that, you know, when you get that type of opportunity to have someone who is willing to mentor you, you should absolutely take advantage of that because that has been a tremendous help to me in industry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I can attest to the fact that, you know, when we had the honor of working together, um, you were the vice president of uh, regulatory affairs within the consumer sector, um, you definitely always emphasize the importance of public health and would always, you know, go back to the impact that it may have on patients or the consumers in, in that case. Um, so I wanted to kind of highlight your career overall. Yep. You know, you've had a lot of different experiences, um, but what excites you about regulatory affairs? Hmm. Well, so I have um, had different careers, but, but I will say that the one that I've truly enjoyed the most is regulatory affairs. And the reason for that is because you are constantly challenged with new things. It could be a new regulation that uh, a regulatory agency has issued and you need to understand it because, you know, colleagues that you work with, you are in regulatory, they expect you to be able to understand what the new you know, guideline or regulation means for the company and how it affects them or not affect them. So it forces you to always be a, a lifelong learner because you constantly have to know because these other people can also read the regulations themselves. But at the end of the day, as the regulatory professional, you need to be the one that um, needs to bring the right perspective to, to that reg regulation or guideline. Uh, so it allows me to learn. Um, it's also done in my life that you know I don't get bored doing. <laughs> Because if I have to do something that is repetitive, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over, um, I quickly get bored. I like to be challenged with different things. I mean, you are in reg you've been in regulatory and you can go to the office one day with your plan mapped out, you get there, well, your entire plan could change, uh, you know, at a moment's notice because maybe one of your drugs uh, caused the safety issue somewhere, and now you have to inform the regulators and, you know, it just changes your day. So that constant challenge of, you know, not knowing what a day may look like, I, I really love that. You know, the fact that there, there are many different things I can be working on at the same time. I, you know, I can sit with a project team discussing a project in one moment and in another moment, I'm on the phone talking to a regulator. I, I just love that, you know, variety and the tremendous opportunities to constantly learn. And also um, in terms of problem solving, 
a lot of the things that we deal with in regulatory affairs are not set out in black and white. You usually have uh, shades of gray. And in that shades of gray zone, it means that you can't necessarily just take a hardline position that something can only be done one way. Like they say, there are many ways to skin a cat. You could have three different ways of doing something. And what I find most valuable in regulatory affairs is not necessarily telling people there, there is only one way to do something, but being able to figure out those different ways that the same thing can be accomplished, but being able to put in front of them what the pros and cons are for each of the options, because what it boils down to is the level of risk tolerance that a company may be willing to take. It's not a matter of right or wrong, uh, as long as it's not anything that borders on ethical, you know, you don't want to do anything unethical. But outside of that, uh, you, you, you can approach something from different perspectives, but the value where regulatory brings value is in being able to let people know that if you take approach A, this is what that will get you. These are the risks you will have to take. This is what the impact might be, whether on your timeline, on resources, or you know, the likelihood of getting something approved by the FDA versus option B or option C. So being able to do that, I think it puts you in a position where you are seen as a leader almost all the time. So regardless of what one's level may be in regulatory affairs, you are always a leader because you are helping other people to see something that you know you might have seen and to galvanize them to see what you are seeing and come along with you. To me, that's what a leader does. And it, it is for these reasons that I really enjoy uh, regulatory affairs. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me of a, a quote that um, one of uh, the leaders at J&J would always say was, you can lead from any seat. And exactly. that definitely holds true within regulatory affairs. Yeah. Um, so just taking a quick pivot to your current position um, within Alexion, and honestly, you know, in your prior positions where you were a vice president, could you talk about your overall experience as a pharma executive and particularly a, a black pharma executive? Um, how has that been? And, you know, what are some pros that you've experienced? And if you don't mind sharing, you know, what are some potential challenges that you've experienced as well? Sure. No, thank you. So, you know, being a, a Black executive uh, means that most of the time you are going to be a minority. You know, I will sit in meetings, uh, especially in my earlier days when I was still relatively young in my profession. Um, when I attend a large meeting, it, it will not be unusual to look around and see that I'm the only one that looks a little bit different from everyone else. Uh, you know, those days have changed now because now we have a lot more people that have entered into the profession, which is a good thing. Uh, but you find yourself um, sort of being, you know, a minority. You're already a minority because you're black, but you'll be a minority, you know, because there are not too many people like you who may be at that level. So you find yourself in the midst of, you know, these other people um, that are more the majority and that can be intimidating sometimes, but, you know, I usually take um, solace in the fact that, look, 
I just didn't get here by accident. I just didn't get here uh, just by chance. There were things I have you know, done along the way that paved the way for me to be here. So I have something to offer. And so um, instead of feeling intimidated or you know, feeling uh, afraid, I'll just um, you know, try to speak up. If I have, you no, know, naturally I'm a quiet person, but when I'm in those settings and I know that I have something of value to share, I will share them because I feel what I have to share is important. I feel it's going to you know, impact somebody somewhere you know, someday. So there's no point for me to keep it in. And that then motivates me and propels me to be able to, uh, to, you know, to, to share that. But, you know, the advantage you get to is because there are not too many such people. It just means that you have a lot more opportunities that are available to you as well, because if they are looking for, you know, people who are minorities to, uh, be in certain positions, it just uh, puts you in a better situation because, you know, the competition will be much less. But of course, you know, our goal is to have more people, many more minorities, many more Black people who can assume these roles because by having many more of, you know, people like us, we can then help uh, others to grow, we can mentor others. And mentoring is something that I personally take very seriously. I love to do it. Uh, so seeing others rise, you know, to where we are, because they are the next generation of uh, folks. I think that's something that all of us should be doing. So yes, it does offer tremendous opportunities. Uh, and of course, you know, some of those challenges are what I said earlier, that anytime you find yourself being a minority, there's always a tendency to, to hide and, you know, just not be known. Uh, you can just, you know, fizzle in the crowd so that nobody really notices you. But, you know, but that's not something we want to be doing. We should really uh, be standing out and, you know, showcasing what we have, contributing where we are called upon to do so and making a difference in the world around us. So I usually see it more as an opportunity than, um, than a challenge at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and honestly, just observing you, you're such a role model when it comes to true leadership. Um, you speak your mind and you always have something of value to add to the conversation. Um, and and, and that, that's amazing. I think, like you mentioned, you know, when we have those opportunities to be in the room or to have a seat at the table, it's, in, it's imperative for us to, take up space and, and not feel as though it, it was just an accident for us to be there, um, but that we were, were there because of our experiences, because we're, we are qualified, and for yeah. us to use that position to make a difference. So thank you for everything that you're doing and have done. Um, it's, again, an, an honor to, to just be a part of your career and, and to, to learn from you. Uh, thank you, Wanda. It's uh, my privilege as well. Knowing someone like yourself, who, whom I would call a pace setter, you know, trying to make a difference in the world. And I think all of us have been called in one way or another to do that. I always see that, you know, whatever opportunities we have or whatever positions we occupy, I usually see the greater good in that, which is 
this is a privilege for a set period of time to make a difference in somebody else's life. So it's usually not about us per se. It's always about how can I use the influence that my position affords me to be able to make somebody else's life better, either through mentoring them or through creating opportunities for them to get hired into a role or whatever it is. You know, it's always a privilege. And I think if all of us can see it from that perspective, it can make a huge difference in society and, you know, lift others up so that, um, you know, they too can uh, have the opportunities that we have had. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's perfect segue to my final question is, yep. um, how would you recommend that people optimize mentoring relationships? I know uh, you spoke about your your relationship with the former um, manager at FDA, yeah. and you guys kind of followed each other somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak a little bit about how those that are looking for mentors, those yeah. that currently have mentors, how can they make the most out of that relationship? Yep. Yeah, you know, mentoring, you know, comes in in different ways. In my own case, like I explained earlier, it was somebody who took notice of me and on their own accord chose they were going to get close to me and help me along the way. Many times that's not the way that it works. Uh, Sometimes it could come from the individual who wants to be mentored, reaching out to someone they consider as a role model uh, to then mentor them. I think, you know, in the situation uh, between you and I, because we had that program uh, for fellowship, which you came through, and of course, you know, I saw the potential in you and felt, oh, this is, you know, somebody that um, we absolutely must do everything possible to get into this program. You already had distinguished yourself academically. You stood out. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm just advocating for this person because they are black or because they are fellow Nigerian, but because I know this person is qualified, this person's credential speaks for itself, and the only thing they need is someone to support them and help them to get to the next level. So, um, you know, so in that situation, I mean, for me, I sometimes actively, you know, just leave the door open to people when we have an interaction and we have a conversation, I will just simply tell them, look, if you want to connect with me further, or if you have a need you think I will be in a position to support you with, just reach out. So by leaving that door open, it invites people in because you know sometimes people may want to do something, but they may be afraid that, oh, well, I don't know, you know if this person's schedule would allow, I don't know if this person will even consider doing this for me, but when as a leader, you leave that door open, I think it encourages people to walk through the door. So through that, I have you know, had the privilege of mentoring a lot of people. But what I think we can do as individuals is um, in any type of situation that we find ourselves in, look at it as an opportunity for networking. It could be a meeting you attended, maybe an external meeting you attended, could be a professional meeting you attended, you are going to run into people. Sometimes it's the speaker, the person who spoke in that session. You really like the way they communicated the information. Uh, You have a lot of things in common with that person and you want to get to know them more, then 
take the active step of introducing yourself to them uh, to say, this is who I am. You know, I really enjoyed your presentation. I would like an opportunity to follow up with you and learn more from you. And then you'll, you'll be ple pleasantly surprised that people are usually, you know, a lot of leaders are typically open and willing to do something like that. So don't be afraid to step out and do that on your own. But if somebody reaches out to you of their own free will, also take it as, you know, a sign of a good gesture that this person has something about me that they believe in and they are willing to invest in my future. So I'm also going to reciprocate that and make sure that I'm, you know, a good mentee by listening to them, by taking their advice. And when I have questions, I'm able to ask and run things by them. And then eventually, sometimes mentors become sponsors. And there's a difference between a mentor and a sponsor. In the case of a sponsor, this is someone that, you know, actively advocates for you where you are not present. Most of the time, it's somebody who is in a, in a position where they can make decisions or where they can influence decisions. So if they want to give you know, a project to someone, for example, in the group, your sponsor will be the person saying, oh, I know the person who can do this project well. I will recommend that it be given to X, Y, Z. Or it comes time you know, for someone to be promoted. They are actively working behind the scenes on your behalf maybe talking to your own boss who may be their peer and say, wow, don't you think this person does a great job? You know, And that way you are really creating the opportunities behind the scenes. So a sponsor is somebody who believes in you, who knows you have potential and who is willing to step out and put their own reputation on the line for you to make sure that they open up doors for you that you may not even be aware of. A mentor is someone that, you know, is like a confidant, you know, so someone that you are, you are free to share information with that you may not ordinarily share with others who can take that in information into confidence, who can honestly tell you how things are, give you feedback, good, bad, bad ugly, and uh, able to, you know, correct you, able to steer you in a certain direction. They are just there for you, you know. To, to listen. So, and sometimes, you know, they are, it may be difficult to tell between the two, but uh, either one is fine. They, at the end of the day, take advantage of whatever opportunities are, you know, open up to you and do that. There are people who have reached out to me, you know, through LinkedIn. They just see my profile and, you know, maybe like my, you know, career profile and say, okay, I want to get to know this person. And they've reached out directly, actually asking, can you be my mentor? And of course, why not, you know? So if you find people like that, you consider a role model, don't be afraid, reach out to them. The, the worst they can tell you is, no, I can't do this. Maybe I don't have the time, but that's okay. You know, if you get a few no's, you are going to run into some few yeses and take advantage of those yeses and run with it. Yes, thank you so much for, you know, making that distinction between a sponsor and a mentor. I know as I was matriculating through the fellowship, that was something that was really um, emphasized was the importance of having someone to help develop you both professionally and, and personally so you can uh, reach the goals that you have set aside for yourself. Um, I also wanted to get your perspective um, as a mentor, uh, how can mentees help you 
um, as that is, it should be a win-win relationship. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, a mentoring relationship should, in fact, be a win-win uh, relationship. Now, a mentee should know that their mentor is investing in them, right? And the, the least thing that the mentee can do is convey to that mentor in many different ways that they value their time, they appreciate what they are doing for them. And how can you do that? It's a simple, if you schedule an appointment that you are going to meet at a certain time, yeah, we all know we don't live in a perfect world. Something could come that may derail that appointment. Have the courtesy to reach out to this person and explain to them, you know, either ahead of time, if something came up before the meeting, to say, oh, you know, I would like for us to reschedule this meeting because something else came for me. Or if it is something that happened just right about the time you had to start the meeting, still take the time to send something to them, whether it's a text message, an email, a phone call, and let them know that this, you know, this has come up and I can't make it. It's better to do that than sort of let the person call into you know, a meeting that you have, wait there for 15 minutes, you don't show up, they don't hear anything from you. It just sends the wrong message to that person that, well, you really don't appreciate this or value, you know, that I'm taking time out of something else to invest in you. So make sure that you keep your appointments when not possible to keep them, give advance notice and reschedule. Make sure that you follow up appropriately on any conversations that you all had. Sometimes it may be your mentor has told you to follow up on something go and do X, Y, Z, or go and find, you know, ABC information. Make sure that you do that. If you agree that you are going to do that, you know, make sure that you do that and make sure that there is that follow-up to let the person know, yep, the guidance you provided to me, it could be like maybe they talk to you about you having a particular meeting with your manager and they gave you advice, they gave you guidance. It's important that after that meeting with that manager, you go back to your mentor, whether at your next regularly scheduled meeting or through an email to let them know, yep, I did have that meeting. It went well or it didn't go so well. Here were you know, the things that went well. These are the things that didn't go well. That then allows the mentor to be able to know how to tweak you know, the next conversation with you. But having that two-way communication is extremely important. And, uh, you know, like we say, it's a two-way thing. I think mentors also benefit from the mentoring relationship because they can also see that, um, you know, when, when they see advice or guidance they provided to someone that has made a difference in their life, it comes back to them as some type of an accomplishment, something that they find gratifying that, okay, I've, you know, I've been able to do something that has made a difference in somebody else's life because anyone who wants to be a mentor is someone who is willing to make a difference in the life of another person. So, you know, both, both individuals um, derive benefit and mentors also learn things from the mentees, you know, that can be helpful uh, to them as well. I mean, sometimes I joke with my mentees and say, well, you need to be my mentor. I have this situation. What will you do? If you were in this situation and guess what you can always learn something from anyone you know they don't have to be a vice president or you know some other senior leader someone who is even at an entry level can 
provide advice that you might never have thought about. So yeah, both parties can enjoy it, but at the end of the day, it boils down to mutual respect, you know, for each other. And if you do that, I think things will go really, really well. Excellent. Thank you so much for that response. And I wholeheartedly agree with everything. I I believe that it should be a mutually benefiting relationship for it to thrive and evolve and and stand the test of time. Um, So now we've reached the the last aspect of this conversation, and this should be a more casual and fun, interactive um, game. It's called Rapid fire this or that. So I'm going to give you two options and you have to pick one, you know, based on your preferences. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. All right. Nigerian jollof or Ghanaian jollof? Oh, Nigerian, hands down. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Good answer. American football or soccer? Soccer for sure. Okay. Who's your favorite team? For soccer, you mean? Yes. Oh, for soccer, it's always uh, you know the Nigerian Eagles when when they when they play. You know, that's always my you know the, the team that I would cheer for. But you know they don't win like the African Cup of Nations or you know in a in a FIFA game. Then of course I will support other African countries. Those would be my next line of support, and then others. Okay. And with the Super Bowl coming up this weekend, who are you yeah. rooting for? Oh, my goodness. That, that's a tough one because, um, you know, I like both teams. I, I like, uh, you know, Tom Brady because he's, um, you know, someone that um, shows, you know, really excellence in what they do. And, um, and I like uh, the Kansas City Chiefs because you have a young quarterback, Know, who just won their first Super Bowl last year. Their coach used to be the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. So I have some attachment to him as well. Uh, so, you know, because uh, Tom Brady has won, what, maybe about six or five, five or six championships already. I've, you know, his fingers are already full of rings. <laughs> he has no more space for rings. So I think I want Kansas City to, to have one more added to their plate. Well, Whoever wins, I think I win because I love both uh, both teams. That's a good answer. You can't lose. You're always going <laughs> to yeah, I can't that. lose. <laughs> <laughs> the next one is city living or country living? Hmm. I think I've always enjoyed more country living. So I maybe because I grew up in a village, I don't know. But I love cities, but only to go in and come out as quickly as I can go and do what I need and get out of it, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I always uh, live like in the suburbs because it's more quiet and it could be because I've had to raise a family and I feel it's more quiet to do that, you know, in the suburb than in the city. But uh, I, I, I love the cities. I, I, re- I really love to visit, to get to do things there, but to live there, you know, day in, day out, um, I've never really done that per se. Um, and so, you know, except well, when I was in Nigeria, you know, I did stay in some cities, uh, Kaduna, uh, Zaria, but at the end of the day, I, I think my preference is for, uh, for the suburbs. Uh, yeah, small okay. towns. Yeah. Um, Netflix or cable TV? Ah. So it may surprise you that I actually don't have an account for Netflix, 
my kids do <laughs> my kids do <laughs> so but cable i use cable and uh, i have the netflix so if there is something i want to watch i mean wonder you remember this i think uh when we were together and um uh this uh black panther the black panther there you yeah. go i was telling you that i haven't watched it and you were sort of Shocked and surprised. <laughs> so what happened was shortly after that, I actually took an international trip, and um, the Black Panther was, you know, one of the options I had to choose from. So I was able to watch it, you know, actually twice on that trip. Uh, but ordinarily, I, I don't do too much, you know, movies uh, unless somebody tells me there is some new movie that really looks great. You have to watch this. Then I, you know force myself to do that. So I don't have a Netflix account. But like I said, my kids all have it. So if I need it, I know it's there, but mm -hmm. it's just not what I do routinely. That's okay. Most people <laughs> just use other people's Netflix accounts. So <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is the final question. Okay. Beach vacation or city vacation? Hmm. So, yeah, I do love uh, the city vacation. And, you know, our, our favorite uh, vacation city is actually Toronto in Canada. Uh, my entire family loves to go to Toronto. So every few years we try to plan a trip to go there. Then the last time we went to Canada, we actually went to all the major cities. We, we started uh, from uh, up north in Quebec, and then made our way to yeah, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, and then came to Niagara Falls. So yeah, I, I, I tend to enjoy, like I said, I love being in the cities. I just don't routinely live there permanently. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's all of the questions that I have. Thank you, Dr. Ikuta, for your time, your pearls of wisdom, and being a remarkable mentor to me. I appreciate the time that you invested into my career. And I'm sure the mentees that you have across the US, and I'm sure globally, they would say the same thing that you are an incredible wealth of knowledge and everything that you that you do and will do in the future will really make a difference in the world. Oh, thank you, Wanda. I appreciate all the kind words. It's, um, you know, really just uh, having the opportunity to, to be where I am. I think it has given me a lot of opportunities to also make a difference in the lives of others. And I see it as a privilege. And uh, certainly if I don't use that privilege, my belief always is that, you know, you will be bypassed. Somebody else will will use that. Somebody else is going to make a difference in another person's life. So why can't it be me doing that? So thank you for the honor, for the privilege. And I'm really delighted to have been a part of this conversation today. Awesome. Thank you so much. This week's episode was amazing, and I hope you enjoyed it too. Special thanks to our guest and my mentor, Dr. Jethro Akuta, for joining us. If you haven't already, please show this podcast some love by leaving a review, sharing with your friends, and hitting subscribe today. If you would like to reach out to me, follow me on Instagram at Justwin with Wanda. Catch you on the next episode. Bye.